Good morning. Father, we give you thanks for this day. It's the day that you have created, and we will rejoice and be glad in it. Give thanks that you are the good shepherd who leads us to still waters and green pastures, who makes our cup run over, that surely goodness and mercy will chase us down all of our days. No matter if we're in the valley of the shadow of death or on the top of the mountains, they're always chasing us. We're grateful for the time we've had to offer our praise and our prayers. We're thankful that Revelation 8 tells us that heaven goes silent when we pray. You, our Father, want to hear from us, your children. Cherubim, shh. Edgewater's praying. We're thankful for your word that guides us. We pray that it would meet us where we're at today. It would be manna for us, feed us, nourish us, direct us, replenish us. So speak, may we listen, and we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Amen, Nehemiah chapter three. I'm gonna read, and I'm gonna keep reading. And when you think I'm done reading, I've just begun. So it's a warning. Then Eliashib, the high priest, rose up with his brothers, the priests, and they built the sheep gate. They consecrated it and set its doors. They consecrated it as far as the Tower of the Hundred, as far as the Tower of Hanel. And next to him, the men of Jericho built, and next to them, Zakur, the son of Imri, built, the sons of Hassanah, built the fish gate. They laid its beams and set its doors, its bolts and its bars. And next to them, Merimoth, the son of Uriah, the son of Hakaz, repaired. And next to them, Meshulam, the son of Berechiah, the son of Meshezebel, repaired. And next to them, Zadok, the son of Baana, repaired. And next to them, the Tekoites repaired, but their nobles would not stoop to serve their Lord. Jehoda, the son of Paseah, and Meshulam, the son of Besediah, repaired the gate of Yeshanah. They laid its beams and set its doors, its bolts and its bars. And next to them repaired Melatiah, the Gibeonite, and Jadon, the Maranathite, the men of Gibeon, and of Mizpah, the seat of the governor of the province beyond the river. Next to them, Uziel, the son of Harai Har, I can just make him up, you know that, because no one knows how they're pronounced. <laughs> Har Hayah, goldsmiths repaired. Next to him, Hananiah, one of the perfumers repaired, and they restored Jerusalem as far as the broad wall. Next to them, Rephia, the son of Hur, ruler of half the district of Jerusalem, repaired. Next to them, Jedidiah, the son of Harumath, repaired opposite his house. Next to him, 
Hattush, the son of Hash-Abaniah, repaired. Malchijah, the son of Herum, and Heshbub, the son of Pehath, Moab, repaired another section and the tower of the ovens. Next to him, Shalom, the son of Hala, he, he, <laughs> the son of Halo Hesh, ruler of half the district of Jerusalem, repaired. Hanan and the inhabitants of Zenoah repaired the valley gate. Malchijah, the son of Rechab, ruler of the district of Beth Hakharam, repaired the dung gate. Shalom, the son of Kol Hozeth, ruler of the district of Mizpah, repaired the fountain gate. After him, Nehemiah, the son of Azbuk, ruler of the district of Bethzer, repaired. After him, the Levites repaired. Betchem, the son of Benai. Next to him, Hashabiah, ruler of half the district of Keilah, repaired. After him, their brothers repaired. Baviah, the son of Henadad, ruler of half the district of Keilah. Next to him, Ezra, the son of Jeshua, ruler of Mizpah, repaired. After him, Baruch, the son of Zabbai, repaired. Another section. After him, Merimoth, the son of Uriah, son of Hakaz, repaired. After him, the priests, the men of the surrounding area, repaired. After them, Benjamin and Hashab repaired. After them, Azariah, the son of Masai, son of Ananiah, repaired. After him, Binui, the son of Henadad, repaired. Powell, the son of Uziah, repaired opposite the buttress and the tower. After him, Padiah, the son of Perush, and the temple servants living on Ophah repaired. After him, the Tekoites repaired. Above the horse gate, the priests repaired, each one opposite his own house. After them, Zadok, the son of Immer, repaired. After him, Shemei, the son of Shechaniah, keeper of the east gate, repaired. After him, Hananiah, the son of Shelemiah, the, and Hanan, the sixth of Zalaf, repaired. After him, Meshulam, the son of Berechiah, repaired. After him, Malchijah, one of the goldsmiths, repaired the house of the temple and the servants. And then between the upper chamber of the corner and the sheep gate, the goldsmiths and the merchants repaired. Nehemiah 3. <laughs> My tongue is now tied. You, you may be asking, Matt, why did you do that to us? Why'd you read a Hebrew census to us? I mean, come on. 40 names about. Does God care about people? Does God care about individual people? Yeah. Does God care about what you do? Yeah, recorded, right? Imagine if your name was in the Bible. My name is in the Bible. The Gospel of Matthew. I don't have to imagine. Okay? So when you're reading through the Bible, I call Nehemiah chapter 3, these kind of chapters, I call them... Uh, melatonic chapters, right? Because you're like, oh, oh, wait a second. And we end up skipping over them, but I think we miss the heart of God when we skip over them. And this is history right here. God's recording a history of what actually occurred. And history is important, isn't it? So I love history personally. So a couple of years ago, I read this book called Sapiens. Anyone read Sapiens? by Yuval Noah Harari. Fascinating, he's not a Christian, he's uh, probably an atheist, it, it kind of comes out in his writing, but he, Sapiens says, I'm gonna give a history of humans from as back as far as we can kind of figure out 
up until the present day. So it was fascinating read for me personally, because I like history. But there was a section that I really was like, oh my goodness, that's interesting. Because he talks about like the way things were 125 years ago, and then really echoing back as far as we can look. And what we see is faith and family and community were like the three feet that held up society. And family was so powerful. So I have just an, uh, a little quote from him. I'm not saying I agree with this. I'm just saying this is what most of human history looked like, okay? So I don't need like, hey, are you kidding? This is what most of human history looked like when it came to family. So you can look this up, sapiens. Until not long ago, the suggestion that the state ought to prevent parents from beating or humiliating their children would have been rejected out of hand as ludicrous and unworkable. In most societies, parental authority was sacred. Respect of and obedience to one's parents were among the most hallowed values. And parents could do almost anything they wanted, including killing newborn babies, selling children into slavery, and marrying off daughters to men more than twice their age. Today, parental authority is in full retreat. Youngsters are increasingly excused from obeying their elders, whereas parents are blamed for anything that goes wrong in the life of their child. <laughs> he goes on in the same section to then talk about men. What men used to be able to do 125 years and back in most societies, and men could do whatever they wanted in their home. That the man was the power center. What he wanted to do with his wife or his kids, it was just, there was a power to men that was unbridled. I'm not saying that was good, I'm just saying that's history. But he said, here's what happened in ancient societies. When a man began to get out of control, the community that he was a part of would take care of it. The grandpas, the uncles, the in-laws, the friends, the neighbors, they would go and deal with that man. And often he said, sometimes the man would not return because they dealt with it. That's what would happen in most of human history. The community said, no, you can't do that anymore. And if you continue doing it, he disappeared. And because there was a community, what would happen is the wife and the kids would actually be absorbed back into the community that they would be taken care of by that community. And if somebody got help, hurt in that community, they broke their leg or something happened to them, the community would rally around that person. I found it very interesting because family and faith and community were these strong centers. On top of that, he said this, 90% of what a person consumed they produced 90%. Anyone here produced 90% of what you consume? Like you are weaving together, you're grabbing wool, you're grabbing your, the hair from your cat, whatever it is, because you got it clothes to make. Like anybody doing that? Like I just try to think like what percent of what I consume do I actually produce? I got some tomatoes in the summer, I got some eggs for my chicken which are worth a lot of money now, so I'm glad for those. It's like under 1% because he argues this. 
Two things came in that radically redefined faith, family, and community, and they're the state, the rise of the state, and the rise of the marketplace. And those two things changed everything. So the state started to say this, we want to educate your children. So we're going to take that over. It used to be a child would be educated inside the home. He would learn the dad's business. He would take over the dad. He would one, he'd go out in the fields and work, right? That's what would happen. But the state said, no, we'll take care of education because the state had an idea that, hey, if we're going to go to a war, we need a certain kind of worker bee, and we're going to produce that worker bee. So the state said, hey, come, join with us. We'll start to educate you. And in Western society, what happened was that they began to tell the child, you are an individual. Before 150 years or so, it was people weren't individuals, really. They belonged to a family. It was all about, hey, you're part of this family. You're part of this community, right? Now it was, hey, you're an individual. You be you. You don't have to ask your dad who to marry. You don't have to get permission from your dad to take that kind of job. You be you, you're an individual. You can move to the city and take the skills that we've given to you and you can be you and you can do whatever you want, free from the patriarchy, free from the oppressiveness of family. You be you. So that was step one. Remove the individual out of the family, kind of out of community. Now they moved to the big city and there was the marketplace. And the marketplace said, we need not producers, we need consumers. Look at any kind of like, interest that there is right now in how the economy is going. And what is it? Consumer price index. Hey, consumer spending fell in February. Oh no, Wall Street goes down. Why? Because you need consumers. Why do we have fashion? Why is fashion always changing? For most of human civilization, you would wear the same kind of clothes from the time you were born until the time you died, but not recently. Why do we have fashion? Does it really make a person that much more beautiful? No. It makes Gap or Banana Republic or whoever it is, I don't know. It makes them money, that's who, right? And I'm not against fashion, but it's part of this thing. We, in order for the marketplace to have its position, then people need to consume and they need to keep consuming because it props the whole thing up, right? So you've got the state, and the marketplace, freeing the individual from community and family, but the old safetyness that existed inside that community, they're gone now, right? Because now that individual has moved from his community, his family, he's in the big city. So what if he gets hurt? What if he comes with a wild kind of mentality, right? He carries his guns, he shoots people. Well, we need someone to police that. So we need a police force. You go back 150 years ago, there might be one sheriff for the entire state of Arizona, right? That was it. Now, because you've got the individual who might be a loose cannon, uh-oh, we need a police force. We need social security for a safety net for someone that gets hurt. We need Medicare, right? You got all these things that the family, I'm not saying the family was perfect. I'm not saying community did it absolutely right, but they used to tend to those things. But once you pull an individual out, now you've got to have, no longer is it relationally driven, we know him, we'll care for him, we'll figure it out. Now it's tax driven. Well, we gotta come up with these safety nets. And every year we hear about more safety nets because family and community are falling apart. And there was a third thing that they had to figure out. It was the faith. 
And so he argues, and I believe this, that in order, humans are hardwired for faith. You know that? We need something, we need purpose. We need something that transcends our life, that's bigger than us. We need to belong to something. We need meaning. All that comes through faith. So the state figured out, guess what? We can, we can use politics as the new religion. And if you look around our world right now, what gets people the most passionate? What gets people hot? What gets people talking? What's on the news all the time? It's politics. It's the new religion. Get a political cause. If we can get the individual to have a political cause, then guess what? He has, he'll find his meaning. She'll find her meaning and her purpose in the political cause. So faith and family and community have been replaced by state, marketplace, and politics. Now, what are the drawbacks to this system? Well, it's impersonal, right? It's not relational anymore. It's almost like we're cogs in a factory just kind of chunking out what something else wants of us. And it's based on a lie. That's the problems with it. And we talk about lacks today, like safety nets can't do this. They can't cure depression and loneliness and anxiety and all, right? Like those things are rampant right now. Like depression. I cut this out a couple of months ago because it just shocked me when it comes to America. This is a graph of countries and their use of antidepressants. Where are we at? Yeah, we're, we're number one. Why? Well, maybe because there's no faith and no family and no community. So I was reading about this group, these groups of people that some of these groups, they don't even have a word for depression. So the, you can look them up. The Kalaluli in Africa. They don't have a word for depression. Not, not even like, they don't have it. The Tai Lao in Thailand. The Toraja in Indonesia. And the Amish in Pennsylvania. What do those four groups have in common? Faith, family, and community. That these things that have been undermined in our current society, we're starting to see the repercussions that safety nets can't help us from, all right? How about drugs now? Like this is the one that just, it breaks my heart because I do services for this, overdoses. Just go back 20 years, 2,000 deaths in America. Where are we at now? Five times that number. And from what I've been reading the last two years, because this ends April of 2021, 2021, the last two years, it's just taken even a more of a hockey stick. It's getting steeper and steeper and steeper. People are killing themselves with drugs now. What a bummer. How about identity? How are people thinking about themselves? So I cut this article out. Well, I, I mean, you don't cut it out anymore. I copied it. It's from Newsweek. And it's from two years ago, but it just shocked me. The, the article shocked me. And here's just one little excerpt from it. So this is Newsweek, October 20th, 2021. You can look it up if you want to. Among millennials, 30% identify as LGBTQ. More than three times the rest of the adult population. And then when researchers broke out the youngest of this group, 18 to 24, Gen Z, they found 39% called themselves LGBTQ. What's going on? Well, if you read the article, and I recommend it, in the article they said, as they looked at this age group, 
75% of them are searching for some kind of meaning in their life. They have nothing to live for. He said, they have no reason, over and over, these, this group of people said, I have no reason to get out of bed in the morning. And so what they found was LGBTQ, both gave them comfort and gave them a reason to get out of bed. So now their identity is their sexuality. You know what a change that is? If you went back 100 years and you asked somebody, what's your identifier? Guess what they would say? Community. I'm Chinese. I'm Nigerian, right? I'm Italian. That you're identified by your community. That's what I am. Then you fast forward right after World War II, what they found was people no longer identified so much with their community. They started to identify with their occupation. What's your identifier? I'm a doctor. I'm a nurse, I'm an electrician, I'm a plumber, right? That was your identity. And then you fast forward from that, yeah, 80s and 90s, it was, your identity was what you thought. I'm progressive, I'm a libertarian, I'm a Democrat, I'm a Republican. It became, you know, kind of your politics and the way that you think about the world. Now, the major definer of this next generation is who they have sex with. Is that progress? I don't know, it's where we're at. I know this is an exceptionally long introduction. And I'm doing that because we're in this book of Nehemiah, and Nehemiah, I think, is this way to learn from this ancient, broken-down city that has all these bad problems that you see mirrored today, how you rebuild and how you get a people to flourish again. And so in chapter 3, I just call it Boots on the Ground, rebuilding a downtown. And there's lots of things we're seeing. We see our faith in chapters one and two. Nehemiah prays and fasts, gets a group of people around him. They pray and fast, comes to this city, gives a God testimony, gets everybody excited. There's faith. We see family. Your own homework can be reread chapter three when you're feeling really energetic and write out how many times it says a father or the son of or a daughter it is family, family, family. But the one thing I can think I can kind of tackle is community. That it's community that is the linchpin in chapter three that helps make, helps repair a downtown, helps rebuild this wall to protect this city. So let's check it out. Three simple things. Number one, notice this. The wall begins at home. So if you heard, I read through it pretty quickly, but I tried to pick out a couple spots where it talks about how, hey, this guy started the wall at his house. And right here, I have them all listed out. Verse 17, Hashabiah, repaired for his district. This is my district. I'm repairing the wall right here. Benjamin and Hashab repaired opposite their house. This is our house. Let's build the wall right there. The priest repaired each one opposite his own house. Zadok, the son of Immer, repaired opposite his own house. Meshulam repaired opposite his chamber. Number one, the wall begins at home. And no doubt, spiritually, it begins right here in my heart. Where am I at? Do I have wide open gates to evil? Where am I at? 
That's why we began 2023. Before I hit Nehemiah, I began with, hey, spiritual disciplines, fasting, praying, giving, studying the Bible, celebration, right? Because where's that with me? And I think there's this half-truth that's sometimes told about the disciplines, that it's always going to be awesome. You're always going to want to study the Bible. You're always going to want to pray. You're always going to give. Really? Uh, There's always going to be ice cream. No. There are times, like the psalmist, that I say, oh, my soul, why are you disquieted within me? What's going on, Matt? And I have to eat my veggies that day, study to show myself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed. This is what I got to eat my veggies today. This is what I got to do. I got to be like the hardworking farmer, Paul tells Timothy. Guess what? I bet there are many mornings a farmer wakes up, looks out, and it's snowing, and it's nasty, and it's raining, and he doesn't want to get out there. But if he doesn't get out there in March... There's no crop in October, all right? Be like the good soldier. But there's many times a soldier's like, mm, I'd rather not fight today. But you got to, because you know, I want the good fruit from this. So no doubt, where am I at? Are there walls that are broken down? Are there gates that are burned up in my own heart? But I also believe it speaks physically to us. My house, physically. Am I building a wall for my house, my neighborhood. So I've told this story before, but it it actually has pretty profoundly changed the way that I think. This was five years ago, I think. I was at home. It was an August day. I'm studying. It was a Thursday. If you don't know where I live, that's fine. You don't have to. (laughs) We live at a dead-end road, driveway, turn on another driveway, turn on another driveway, and it dead-ends into our house, right? So we don't get drive-bys. You're either coming to visit us or you're lost. So I'm in my study and my kids come running into my study. Dad, dad, there's somebody here and he's creepy, right? He's got this truck, he's he's trying to steal your gas. I'm like, what? So I come out of my study and I come running out around the house and there's this guy and he's got this beat up truck, tarp over something in the back. He's got no shirt on. His jeans are sloping down way too much for me. I'm like, oh, bro. And then he's doing the drug dance, you know, the guy's like, hey, man, like, like, oh, okay. He's doing that. So I've got my five kids there. I start doing the dad dance. I'm like, bro, what are you doing? He's like, um, I thought there was a gas station back here. (laughs) You've been on a dirt road and another dirt road and another dirt road. I've never seen a gas station like that, man. What are you talking about? Oh, 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 I thought uh, Fields Home Improvement was back here. No, you didn't. You're lying to me right now. What are you doing? And the whole time he keeps moving this tarp over something and I can see the tire of like a Honda Metropolitan scooter. And I'm thinking, I know what he's doing. He's driving down driveways right now to see if people aren't home to steal stuff. I wonder if he stole that scooter right there. So I'm like, dude, you gotta leave. This is not a place where you gotta leave. He's like, well, I ran out of gas. Man, I don't have any gas. I can't start my truck. I said, fine, I give him a half gallon of gas. You gotta go. He leaves. Right? So I'm like, oh, whew. go back into my study. About a half an hour, 45 minutes later, a friend came by. My kids are all amped up about this. So they tell this friend, oh man, this crazy guy came in. Right? They tell the whole story over. He's like, really? So he comes into my study, sits down and goes, tell me what happened. So I retell it to him. Yeah, I got him out of here. He's like, did you take his picture? No. 
Uh, did you follow him to make sure he left your neighborhood? No. Were you worried at all that he might go to somebody's house where there's not an able-bodied person there? It's like a grandma or an old person, and he might take advantage of them and might hurt them? You didn't do that? No, I didn't. Don't you think you ought to? I just said, I hate you. Because <laughs> he was right. I got to care for more than just my little spot. I mean, good men turn a blind eye to bad things. The whole city goes down. It begins in my house. So I've changed. So three months ago, I'm driving home. I got Elijah in my truck and we're driving and we see this car and we're on Ponderosa. You know, it's part of about a mile from my house. I, we see this car just pull over and the passenger reaches out, opens a mailbox, grabs all the mail out of it. They put it in their lap, close the mailbox and they take off. I look at Elijah and I said, did you see that? He said, yeah, I think they stole the mail. So I whipped the Yui. And I followed this car four miles down into Fruitdale, where the, the apartments are that are like a little sketchy. She pulled right into there. I'm like, oh man, I'm going to get shot here. All right. So I get out and I, and I approach the van. I said, hey, my name is Matt Heverly. I live up on Walker Road. Uh, I noticed you guys uh, grabbed some mail out of a mailbox. I'm, I'm wondering, they're like, well, we live there. I said, what's your name? They told me their name. I said, what's your address? They told me their address. I said, can I see a piece of mail? They hand me the piece of mail. It matched perfectly. I said, I'm so sorry. <laughs> this is what they said. Thank you. Thank you that you care because we've had mail stolen. Thank you that you're doing that. See, people appreciate it. They know there needs to be walls. There needs to be people that say, oh, time out. What's going on here? In a kind way, no doubt. Doing it in the right way, absolutely. But also, hey, hold on a second. Something's not right. Something's not right. We need to be doing that. Like we feel like now, industry way, we got to build a wall here. Have you noticed how different it is out here? You know why it's different? Because Eddie King and Sean Logue and Jason Folkstadt and myself, we decided this is our house. We're not trashing this place anymore. Trashy stuff's not happening here anymore. So we call on it. Every Thursday, I walk down this road and I pick up trash along our side because this is our house. Trash doesn't belong here. On Thursday, I found a bike, a bike frame, carbon fiber bike frame. If you lost a carbon fiber bike frame, I have it right now. I didn't steal it. I found it right back here, okay? You can have it back. I don't want it. Why are we doing that? Because this is our neighborhood, not here. No more. We used to just fix things that were vandalized. The police told us, please tell us when it gets vandalized. Please take pictures of it. Please, because they're gonna do it somewhere else. And we need to have a record if we're ever gonna make a change. So now we take pictures of it and we turn it in. Hey, this was vandalized on our property. This was dug up. This tree was broken over, right? Because the wall begins at home. And we've said, the four of us, this is home for us. And so we're gonna make sure that stuff doesn't happen that's trashy here. The wall begins at home. What are you doing for your neighborhood? Are you like me where you're just like, ah, you know, get it out of my, if it's long, as long as it's not my house, we can't do that anymore. Not if we're gonna change our city. Not if we're gonna repair it. We have to say, no, I'm here for the good of those that are neighbors to me. I'm building a wall at home. Number one, the wall begins at home. Number two, the wall continues with the next to him. 
So I read this chapter. How many times did it say, and next to him? And next to him, right? Like 7,000 times. What's it saying? This was a community that realized we have someone we can pass the baton to, to, right? We've repaired where we can, and praise God we're handing the baton to somebody who's going to repair where they're at. Because what do you call a half-finished wall? Landscaping, a gate, worthless, right? Either the wall gets completely done or every bit of energy is worthless. It has to be completely done. So they had somebody that they could hand the baton to, that they trusted, you're gonna take it from here and you're gonna build your side well as well, that it will be made right. They had community, brilliant, beautiful, incredible, good community. How are we doing as a community of believers? Do we have next to hymns? It's hard. Sociologists say that when a group of people get bigger than 150, we lose the normal mechanisms for community, that things become strange and awkward, right? It's just hard, like, how, how do you break in? How do you know people? I kind of feel like, Ugh, right? Where do I sit? What do I do? So the normal mechanisms break in a crew this size. It becomes awkward. We all know, hey, we need community, but actually getting it is difficult and awkward. It's like the first time as a husband when you have to go buy feminine products for your wife. You know you got to do it, but man, it's awkward. Especially today, because they're going to say, are these for you? Right? You're like, no. No, it's not. I do have a wife. It's like that. We know Genesis 1 and 2. It's good. It's good. It's good. It's not good that Adam is alone, but it's hard. And so I always am praying and thinking, Lord, how do we do better? because we need it. We need people that remind us Jesus is on the throne. You are more than a conqueror. Greater is he that's in you that's he, than he that's in the world. We need that. We need community. We need people, but it's difficult. And so can Edgewater do better? Yeah. And we got home groups, and those are good. And we got mops, and that's good. And we got Friday mornings for men, and that's good. And Mondays for ladies, and that's good. But we could do better. We can do better. Pray for us that we do better. But it's a two-way street, isn't it? We need to do better, no doubt, as a church. And we pray and we think about it. But part of it, part of community is, well, I got to do better. We got to do better. How do you do that? I have an acronym that I think might help us just to take a little step forward in creating good community here. So here it is. It's LIFE. L stands for this. Linger. How do you meet new people? If you're older, think for a second. I'm 51. Is that old? For some it is, for some it isn't, right? I think after 50, you're old, so I'm old, right? If you're a little bit older, know this. It gets harder and harder to make friends, does it not? Think about just for a second, when's the last new friend you made, someone you did not know at all that now you know and they're a friend. You could go to their house and drink milk out of their fridge from the container, that kind of friend. Six months, six years, 60 years, because it gets harder and harder. Something changes in us. I remember 
Charity and I went to this pastor's retreat a couple years ago, and we called back home and we're talking to all of our kids. And you know, my three girls are like, oh, what'd you see? What'd you eat? My son Elijah, he was about 10 at the time, I think he just grunted. And then Myron, he was maybe four or five. And I said, hey, Myron, how you doing, buddy? Good. This is what he said. Dad, did you make any new friends? Why? Because four-year-olds are wired for it, aren't they? They go anywhere and make a friend. But something happens to us where we, we just don't do it anymore. It's about eating or taking pictures or grunting. And it happens quickly. So we got to work on actually reversing that. So number one, linger. Linger. Jesus in John chapter four just lingers around this well, meets this woman, starts a conversation with her and changes an entire village. He lingers. So we try to do stuff that makes you linger a little bit. Like, do you know why we do pour over coffee out here? Because you used to get it out of an aluminum pot, right? And that was awesome. It'd been in there for an hour and a half. You just get it really fast. Give you heartburn and Alzheimer's, but man, it was fast. So are we like coffee snobs? Is that why we did that? Nope. It doesn't make you to linger. You got to stand in line. Our hope is that you have a conversation with somebody, that you talk to them. Now, I just don't know what to say though. You got it here. It's so easy to say, man, wasn't that a great message today? <laughs> Boom, you're in. <laughs> linger, slow down. Preaching is exhausting for me but I make a point to spend time out there lingering and talking with people, especially looking for the someone that, that maybe is new or disconnected and introducing myself to them. That's what lingering does. We don't linger enough anymore as a culture. Linger. Number two, be interested. Be interested. Proverbs 18, 24 says, a friend must show himself friendly. Jesus was always asking questions and telling stories. You want to know how to be a good friend? Ask good questions and tell stories. That to me is it. There's your way in. Man, I just don't know what to say here. People aren't that interesting or whatever it is. So when I did premarital counseling, I'd always tell the couples this. Listen, two people that are 100% open with each other will never lack something to talk about. It's when we won't, when we cover and we shield and we put on masks that we don't have anything to talk about. And in 17 years, I've met all kinds of people, all kinds of new people. And whenever a conversation isn't going well, this is the first thing I do. I say, tell me your testimony. And hundreds, maybe a thousand people now, I have never had one person that I didn't connect with somehow. Something about their childhood, growing up without a dad, somewhere that they had traveled to, a job that they'd had, something, we make a connection. Because we're humans, right? Just be interested in people ask questions, tell stories, just like Jesus. Find, F, find someone different than you. When you look at the 12 disciples, it's like Jesus purposefully picked people that are from every kind of walk of life in Israel. You got Simon the Zealot who wants to kill all the Romans. You've got Matthew the tax collector, a turncoat trader who works for the Romans. Who's gonna have a problem? Right? And I'm sure Jesus said, you two are bunking together. Good luck with that. If it wasn't for the fact that he was God in the flesh, they would have killed each other. Man, I love that we're not homogenous. It's really healthy. 1 Corinthians 9, 6 through 11, Paul looks at the church and says, oh man, look at you guys. 
fornicators, adulterers, men-stealers, homosexuals, greedy, thieving, right? All these things. And he goes, listen, that's what you were, but now, verse 11, you are blood-bought saints of Jesus Christ. That's what the church is to be, just incredible diversity. Find someone different than you. Like, I love to look out on the congregation and see some guy I know is just getting off drugs. And he's fidgeting in his seat and he can't sit still because it's still in him. But he's moving forward and he's sitting right next to like a CEO business guy who's like, constantly checking for his wallet. Yep, still there. Okay, we're good. That's healthy because that's the body of Christ. Find somebody different. And then lastly, earn it. Earn your influence. Sometimes I think we try to take from a relationship more than we put into it. Jesus has earned everything from me because while I was yet a sinner, Christ demonstrated his love for me that he died on the cross for me, Romans 5, 8. That I love him, 1 John 4, 19, because he first loved me. This time of these like casual friendships where we just eliminate people because they do one thing wrong, that's got to end. A friend is someone that walks in when the rest of the world walks out. We earn it. Bro, I know what happened. I know you did something, whatever it is, and I'm here for you. It's community. We need next to hymns. We need it. So a great book, if you're interested in it, is Rosaria Butterfield's book. It's called My Trainwreck Conversion. And if you don't know her story, it's amazing. She was a professor at Syracuse University, atheist, and a lesbian. And she started all of a sudden being drawn by God's spirit, going to church with her girlfriend, right? She's a Syracuse University lesbian professor. Like some of you think never get saved. And she does. Brilliant book. Read it. Like it's inspiring. But she said something in that book that I underlined and I circled because she said this. She said, the hardest part of my conversion was not my sexuality. The hardest part of my conversion was community, that lesbians did it better than the church. Probably true. Doesn't mean it has to stay that way. That we, yes, Edgewater, pray for us, that God gives us wisdom, how to better figure out how to grow small and get us connected. Yes, no doubt, but also each of us. Man, let's linger. Let's be interested. Let's find. Let's earn. Community, they had an next to them, someone that they could trust. You're gonna do the wall there. Lastly, and I'll be quick. The wall only happens with all hands on deck. And I have almost there. Because there's one group, verse five, that won't join in. So you got 40 plus names of people, right? All these different groups. Did you notice the occupations? I tried to read them for you. I have them listed out. You got pastors, governors, goldsmiths, perfumers, rulers, temple servants. What's missing from this list? How about Jacob, the bricklayer, Simeon, the mason, Isaiah, the contractor? It's the wrong kind of people, right? If you need a wall built or you need a fence built, are you hiring a perfumer? Bro, you smell good. You're hired, man. Last guy stunk so bad, you are so in. 
right? I mean, it's like, what in the world? These are all the wrong kind of people. But God didn't think so. There's one reason Jerusalem has rallied. There's one reason why a wall is built in 52 days. There's one reason families are protected. Kids can play in their yard again. Moms can sleep soundly at night. There's one reason why an empire's just thumbprint ends. There's one reason marriages are sanctified. The enemy is thwarted. The gates are locked against evil. There's one reason, it's because all hands are on deck. A crisis reveals the community. Do you know that? It reveals who's real community. Verse five, the nobles wouldn't join in. Why? Because they're not community. They could care less. They got their villa out there. Nah, I don't need to forget Jerusalem. That's not my community. I'll just take off and live out here. They were a community. A crisis reveals who is in community. The perfumer's like, yeah, we need a wall. It doesn't matter they don't have calluses. And I've been pressing uh, rose petals all day long. I can go out there. I can pick up a stone. I can do something. And he does it. Crisis reveals who's the community. It's the group that says, here I am, send me. Doesn't matter what I'm good at. Use me. I've got five loaves and two fish. Take them. I've got two mites. Take them. I've got a slingshot and a rock. Can you use it? I've got a staff. I've got prayer. I can stop. I can care. What, right? It's all hands on deck. That's the only way this works. So if you're going to write your name somewhere, would it appear? For rebuilding Grants Pass, where's my name? Where do I fit? How do I do it? Because Ephesians chapter four has this brilliant, brilliant look at diversity and unity and maturity. And verse 16 is like the capstone of that idea. And it says this, here's the key. When the body is connected to Jesus and connected to the next to him's, and every part is contributing, then it grows stronger and stronger and stronger. We need to be connected and contributing, both of those. If something is connected to a body, but it's not contributing to a body, what do you call that? Parasite, right? That's what a parasite is. When something is connected, but, but or contributing, but not connected, what happens there? They get burnt out because they're not getting anything back. It's when we're connected, knowing the next to hymns, knowing our head is Jesus, and using what God has given to us, contributing into the body. Ah, you have miracles. You have cities rebuilt, renewed, and remade. That's what chapter three teaches us.